on a crisp 34-degree morning in July. In Yellowstone National Park, V and I drove down the grade, and from what we could make out from the front seats of our car, pillars of steam were spiraling upwards into the sky. Fashioned by a number of geysers in the area, we were fascinated by our view. Upon our arrival at the Old Faithful Inn, we ventured out onto the semi-circular pier to see what millions of previous tourists had already seen, and Old Faithful delivered as it has for the past several decades. Oh, so cool. But the excitement of seeing the geyser go off again was then tempered by the words of one of the park rangers who happened to be standing nearby. He said that Yellowstone, the entire park, which is huge, was a supervolcano ready to erupt at any time. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 71st episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. Biblical details, historical context that puts you in the action. Naturally, this tidbit of information didn't exactly sit well with me. I started to wonder, how fast can we get out of here? How many people will we have to push out of our way to get out of here? How many old and slow drivers will we need to pass? I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but with our world on fire right now, the virus, the tanking economy on a global scale, the protests, and the polarization of our country, we can't help but wonder, God, what are you doing here? Our world right now is like this super volcano just ready to go off. While this question certainly motivates us to re-examine our understanding of the end times, I think we should also be asking this. What do we do when God shakes up our world? And as we get into today's episode, we pick up where the Philippian jailer is about to end his own life. His own world is getting shaken up. So what happens? Well, stick around. And with that, let's get started. Normally suffocated by darkness, the room warmly welcomes the light as two guards enter in while carrying torches. His eyes adjusting to the new light, Paul makes out the shapes of the two men who slowly walk down the rock-fashioned stairway. He then notices a third man standing in the doorway, where once an impassable door existed, but it had been just tossed aside by the violent earthquake. Though difficult to know for certain, Paul senses it's the jailer who had tended to him and Silas a few hours before. What is he doing? Just standing there with his hands on his sword? Paul wonders to himself. We're not going anywhere. Paul's eyes then widen when he both sees and hears the jailer remove his sword from his scabbard. Taking only a few steps, both guards hear the familiar metal-on-metal sound of a sword being drawn from its sheath. They quickly turn around and point their torchlight back at their commanding officer. Only a few steps away, they see their senior officer clutching the handle of a sword with both hands, aiming it into his own belly. Sir, a confused Festus asks, What a... Wait! A voice interrupts from the darkness below. Stop! We're here! We're here! 
Hearing the voice cry out from below, Festus turns his head towards the darkness and holds up the torch to see the room better. His body quivering, the jailer looks up from his shaking sword and at the startled faces of his subordinates who stand only feet away. He then glances back down at the tip of his own blade, pointed less than an inch away from his stomach. Do not harm yourself, the voice from the darkness pleads again. We are all here. The jailer stares out into the dark room below for a beat. Lowering his sword, he then looks back at his men who appear to be frozen. Collecting himself, the jailer nods over at the men and says in his familiar gruff voice, It's all right, guys. Go check things out. Both guards draw their own swords as they move down the rock-laden stairway. The room brightens as the men make their way to its bottom. The guards come upon the four men and divide them into pairs. Festus barks, Everyone stay seated with your arms out in front. He then proceeds to examine each detainee. Show me your hands, he orders the two other men. Lifting their arms, both men reveal how their shackles are still attached to the wrists. Upon further observation, Festus notices the slack between the chains and the wall. They're not tight, he utters to himself. Festus then looks upon the walls where the chain were once attached, and he grows wide-eyed as he follows the chain to their former anchors that are no longer attached to the walls. Sir, he cries out, the anchors for these chains are no longer, well, the wall, sir. It's been compromised. What do you mean, the jailer calls out as he walks down the stairs. I mean, Festus replies as he holds up the foot-long anchor that was formerly embedded into the wall. It's like they yanked them right out from the wall, sir. The jailer bends down to examine the other metal anchor that's been made even heavier by the fragments of concrete still attached to it. He then looks over at the weakened and already rail-thin detainee who probably could barely stand, let alone have the strength to remove such a reinforced anchor. He then looks at the wall once again and shakes his head. I don't get this, he mutters. Sir, the other guard exclaims. Startled out from his thoughts, the jailer curtly asks, What is it, Livius? You're going to want to see this, Livius responds. With his eyes fixed on the wall where the chain's anchors were once fastened, the jailer walks over to where Paul and Silas are seated. His mind races as he sees both of their feet free from the heavy wooden stock that lay disassembled off to the side. Stopping himself, the jailer stares at the empty stock that once securely held both men together with a sturdy Roman padlock. Where is it? he mutters. Where's what, sir? asked Livius, who overhears him. Shining the torchlight on the other side of the room, Festus calls out. It's laying over there, sir. The jailer walks over to where Festus points, bends down, and picks up what remains of the padlock. Discarding it back to the ground, the jailer stands and walks back to where Paul and Silas are seated. Assessing the two propped up against the wall, the jailer carefully studies their arms situated in their laps, free from any restraint. He looks at Paul, then down at his freed arms, and then back at the pair of eyes staring deeply into his own. The jailer shakes his head in disbelief. His mind races to piece the evidence together, but nothing seems to be making sense. He looks up to see a missing door, then over at the other men who've been freed but are still in chains. Finally, he comes back to stare directly at Paul, who returns his stare. Why didn't you? 
Leave? Paul finishes his question. That's not why we're here, he says. The jailer begins to quiver once again and looks down at the floor. He then drops to his knees and prostrates himself before the man seated in front of him. As the jailer slowly escorts Paul down the stone-laden corridor, Silas ambles behind and examines the lacerations found along his arms and legs. Grateful for the torchlight, Silas then gets a glimpse of the injured man in front of him. He grimaces at the sight of Paul and wonders how he's even walking. Can we rest for, for a moment, Paul pleads. I need to take things slow right now. The jailer sets him down and situates him against the stony wall. He nods at Silas to do the same. I'm okay, Silas responds. The jailer then crouches down and stares into Paul's eyes. I told you before. The verdict was out with you guys. I didn't know what to think, he says just above a whisper. He looks back at Silas, then back at Paul, and says, But this, everything, it, it just happened. Because of you. He looks deeply into Paul's eyes again. I'm alive right now. And I get to go home to my wife and my family. No shame. No humiliation. Why? He stops himself and refocuses. The gods must have obviously sent you, and they are clearly with you. Sirs, he looks up at Silas again. What must I do to be saved? Silas looks over at Paul, who lets the question linger in the air, as if it requires time to reverberate through the corridor. Paul takes several deeper breaths and lets out a faint smile. This is not the work of the gods. This is the work of only one. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You, your family, he says. With Paul's arm around the much larger jailer's shoulders, he limps along through a maze of corridors where they eventually arrive at his apartment. The jailer gently lowers Paul down onto his seat when his wife scoots him out of the way and says, You, go get some oil, water, and linens. She then turns to Paul and shakes her head. Oh, what have they done to you? She asks as she begins to assess his arms. She sighs and says, Let's have a look at you. Having just assigned an older son to gather the items, the jailer returns next to his wife, who looks back at him with surprise. Hearing that he has delegated this task, she rolls her eyes and turns back to face Paul. When's the last time you've had something to eat? Well, let's see what I can... She tries to stand when her husband pulls her back down to her seat. Exasperated, she turns to him and asks, What? What are you doing? I'm trying to get him some food. Returning with linens, a bucket of water, oil, and a dull curved blade, the jailer's son enters the room with an approving look from his mother. Oh, thank you, sweetie, the jailer's wife says as she reaches over for the strigil. Wait, honey, the jailer says aloud. Wait for what, she asks as she reaches over for the strigil and begins to scrape it gently along Paul's arm. This poor man needs... With his other hand, Paul gently pushes her hand away and says... He's right. This can come later. Surprised by this, the jailer's wife sits up, placing her hands along her side, and asks, Okay, what happened down there? Honey, the jailer says as he takes his wife's hands and loses them inside of his own much larger palms. These men, he looks over at Paul and then back at her, 
These men, they are not ordinary men. Paul smiles and places a hand up. We are very ordinary men, he says, who serve an extraordinary God. What do you, she says as her voice trails off. Their God has sent them here, the jailer continues. That earthquake that you slept through, it was sent by their God to free them. God shook our whole city to bring them before us right here and now, he says. We're here to tell you that our God has found favor with you, even though you are not one of us, Paul explains as he takes a weak breath. You were not Jewish, yet God has chosen you to hear more about him, how he came to us Jews, lived as one of us, was crucified, and overcame death by raising back to immortal life after spending three days in a tomb. I don't understand, she says as Silas interrupts. God is offering you a means to be reconciled to him, Silas shares with a smile. Along with the rest of humanity, you have followed the inclinations of your self-serving, self-protecting nature. God calls that nature sin, and he has always been opposed to sin. Like everyone else, you have been subject to his anger. Yet in his kindness, God has offered us life when he raised his chosen one from the dead. It is his gift to us as human beings who choose to believe. But the jailer looks up. Why would your God do this? Silas looks over at Paul to see if he would like to say anything. God created humanity, and it was good, Paul responds. Sin, our self-serving nature, changed all of that. God has initiated this reconciliation to bring about the good things he wanted for us since the beginning. Well, we're going to need to stop here for today. What happened when God shakes up our world? God often gets our attention in times of pain, loneliness, or maybe when we feel empty. It's often during these times of personal crises when God opens up a whole new world for us. We begin seeking him out, or at least the breadcrumbs, those events where he is connected with humanity throughout history. We start looking into it, and we can take great comfort knowing that he isn't far from us. God has left himself to be discovered for those who show an interest. Acts 17, 24-27 says it this way, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made of hands. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath in all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, and perhaps they might even grope for him and find him, though he is really not far from each one of us. So what happens then when God, who is not far away from us, shakes up our worlds? First, we become open to a new way of thinking. When you believe Jesus as the one who has been resurrected from the dead, you have opened the door for the possibility of the supernatural. Resurrection is truly a supernatural act and defies all probability as we know it. Roman culture, it was wide open to the supernatural. 
In Rome, mythology and superstition ran rampant. Most paid homage, even if only to keep appearances, to some form of God. At this time, Rome had even developed the imperial cult, where emperor worship had become commonplace and expected amongst its citizenry. This is a huge reason, by the way, why Paul and Silas were thrown into a holding cell. They were seen as subversive, especially as they were gaining an influence among the Romans in Philippi. So, when God caused the earthquake, he demonstrated to the Philippian jailer and those with him that he can intervene and even use natural law as he sees fit to accomplish his purposes. So while Roman culture was very open to the supernatural, Western culture today isn't, even though we have a lot of historical breadcrumbs to work with. Much to the credit of empiricism and scientific thinking, supernatural and often even superstitious explanations have died down. I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing. Much folklore and superstitious thinking have messed up societies for millennia, resulting in some pretty distorted cultural practices and even government policies. On the other hand, empiricism and scientific thinking by their inherent nature seek to give rational explanation to all events, as all things must happen within the laws of nature. Consequently, with an insatiable appetite to discover and reveal all things, many ardent adherents of this way of thinking have ruled out supernatural interaction altogether. In their minds, there is no possibility for the supernatural to exist. Unfortunately, even if there were copious amounts of breadcrumbs that might lead one to the possibility of a supernatural intervention, by an individual's refusal to even allow for a supernatural explanation, he rules out any possibility of there being one. This mindset has also produced a lot of messed up thinking. This is our challenge. God shook their world. Many folks, like the Philippian jailer, experienced it, believed, and began their journey. Is God still shaking ours? That's the question. I think so. Though, for many of us, we have already ruled out the possibility of God to interact. Will it take a God-sized set of events to open us to a new way of thinking? I think so. With a set of cataclysmically sized events, some of those who are closed off to the supernatural at this time might change their minds down the road. Incidentally, from what is happening right now, we may not be too far away from yet another supernatural collision, especially given the climate of today's global events. Not only are we going to be open to the idea of God working within us, we also, second, begin to see God at work. Believing in Jesus opens the possibility of supernatural intervention. To receive Christ is to receive the impossibility of a supernatural work in a world where God chooses to interact within or bypass the natural order. The things of God are not probable. They are impossible. By their very nature, they defy the limitations governed by natural order. Though this doesn't mean that God's interaction with humanity are left without breadcrumbs. From a Christian's vantage point, we see God as the creator and sustainer of the world as we know it. We understand that God set up and continues to uphold natural order. 
We also understand that each discovery science continues to unveil is yet another insight into the fathomless knowledge of our God. With such a vantage point, we have no problem with God choosing to work within or bypassing the limitations found in the laws of nature. He created natural law and determined its boundaries in the first place. What can prevent him from doing as he chooses with it? Consequently, we start looking for God moments, those sightings where we see God's handiwork, his interactions with the world. Does it mean that those who don't know him can't see him at work? Well, kinda. If you refuse to believe that God might have a hand in something, then how can you see that which you refuse to believe? You will rationalize against the possibility of God's interaction. This was true of those who refused to believe that Jesus could be the Messiah. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up to him, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? That's Matthew 16, 1-3. It is also true of those who refuse to believe that God could be at work here and now. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says it this way, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. When God shakes up our world, we begin to see him at work. When we see God at work, we then become highly motivated to seek him out further. 3. We regularly seek him out. There's nothing like the fear of God that gets us motivated. Take a moment to read through Psalm 111 sometime. It aptly ends by explaining how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. For those who have ebbed and flowed in their Christianity over the years, we are often brought back to faith when our worlds fall apart. This might be such a time, and so be it. God will use these times to bring about those who belong to Him back to Him regularly to seek Him out. In these times, we tend to take God more seriously than in others. But that has never been God's hope for any of us. God doesn't wish for us to seek Him only in times of fear. His goal all along has been for us to seek Him out during the bad times as well as the good, because we understand that His perfect love casts out all fear. Proverbs 1.33 says it this way, But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. As we wrap this up, I just want to encourage you with this final thought from Jesus himself. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. 
so that when the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Regardless of the season, in good times as well as bad, I beg you, seek Jesus out. May you discover the wisdom of God when he shakes your world. And with that, let's move forward together.